big piece of their job is doing that due diligence to say, um, is this plan properly funded? And then make that recommendation to their client. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. In this episode, we'll be talking to Megan Ballas, who's an executive with Equitable on their group benefit side. Uh, Megan is somebody that I've followed for a long time, and she brings a great presence, great uh, round of knowledge. Uh, This episode will be approved for life insurance credits in all jurisdictions, except in Alberta, where it will be good for one ANS credit, no life insurance credits in Alberta, only ANS, as is typical with most of the group benefits content. It'll also be approved for an IAS credit, a financial planning credit with FP Canada, and a professional development credit with IROC. color for this episode is green. The color for this episode is green. Okay, we uh, covered a lot of content here. Uh, We have a little bit more than an hour of interview time, so we'll roll right into uh, my discussion with Megan. I hope you'll learn a lot here. I found that we covered just a, a great range of group benefits related topics. I'm joined today by Megan Ballas. Megan is the Vice President of Group Sales for the Western Region with Equitable. Megan, can you chat a little bit about yourself and your role at Equitable? Absolutely. Uh, First, Jason, thanks so much for having me on today. Really happy to be here and chat with you. So at Equitable Life, um, like you said, I'm the Group Sales VP in the Western Region. So I manage the account executive team from Manitoba, um, all the way through to BC. So we have nine uh, really great account executives on the team here working with the advisor community to help them place group benefits. I've been in the benefits industry for about 15 years. Um, My sort of uh, benefits slogan is I help people make their benefit plan braggable. About a third of my time is has been uh, on the advisory side of our business and the balance with various insurers. Yeah, I sort of know you from the advisory side. That's where I've always connected you. I think the first time I heard you was either on Twitter or on Robin Bailey's podcast. So I know you have this background as a rep at the dealing directly with group level. I do. I like this tagline, though, this idea of making your benefit plan breakable. That's really solid. Can you chat a little bit about the transition that you made here, I guess, back into an insurer where you, you know, I, I find it very common for people to go from the insurer to the brokerage world, but you've gone the other way. What have you learned in that transition? What can you share with us there? 
Yeah. So I kind of look at it as uh, I, I'm a, I have an advisor sandwich with insurance carrier bread. Uh, so I went from the insurance side of the business to the advisor side and then back to the insurance side. So it's been really valuable because now I have firsthand experience with what our advisor partners face day to day. I know exactly how important it is to set expectations with clients and set them early, especially around um, the cost and renewals, which we're going to talk about today. You know, I've experienced what it takes to be different in a saturated market, which is really challenging, what it's like to sell huge renewals. I've experienced firsthand just how important my advice is and real advice and real recommendations, which, you know, in the industry, we sometimes confuse spreadsheeting benefits as a recommendation. And so, you know, what I saw on the advisor side is, you know, advisors have a lot of influence on the individual client, but the insurance side, we have influence on the advisor community as a whole. And, you know, we're shaping the industry landscape of what what products we're selling, how we're selling them and with whom. And that's a large reason, you know, why I transitioned back into the insurance side of the business, because I have a lot of ideas that I, of course, think are wonderful on, you know, where our industry could be going. Uh, and I'm really passionate about that. And so I wanted to have that larger influence uh, in the community. So do you find, Megan, in your role with Equitable, uh, that your background in the brokerage world changes how your ideas or input are received? That's a really interesting question, Jason. I think that People are interested in that perspective. Having recently been you know, in the advisor world, uh, you know, having that perspective is uh, everything we do is all about you know, the advisor's experience, the client's experience, the plan member experience. And so that advisor experience being so fresh is quite relevant. So yes, uh, I think it might change how the input's received. Uh, but also no, because if a crap idea is crap, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. But we really have a culture of continuous improvement. And so, you know, my ideas, my visions, my suggestions are, are welcome in general, as are everyone's on the teams. And so, you know, we have regular discussion about how we should be evolving, as any insurance carrier should be. You know, gone are the days where we had annual product updates that happened once and it was a big kind of to do. You know, today you need to be continuously evolving and you need to be thinking about the different perspectives of everyone that you're working with and putting yourself in those shoes. And so me walking those shoes recently um, is useful. I can't uh, can't keep track of the amount of change we've seen. I'm just picked telemedicine this year, right? Like the this is a term that we almost didn't use, say, 15 months ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And now we've seen, like, essentially businesses go through a whole business cycle in the telemedicine side, right? The, like, raise money, fund, go public, like, all that kind of stuff, right? It's, uh, it's madness on the, yeah, that pace of change. Now, switching gears a little bit here, I mentioned this already. Of course, you're quite active on social media. Mm-hmm. And I find sometimes when people go to a corporate role, their social media presence kind of shuts down, but you've not done that. Can you chat a little bit about your uh, social media presence and maybe how that worked as a, as a broker and how that works for you now? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I started 
um, about 15 years ago in the industry. And um, that was right when Facebook launched. So, you know, I can remember being at uh, Great West Life Group School, signing up for my first Facebook account. Uh, and then, you know, not too long after LinkedIn launched, I didn't initially embrace LinkedIn as um, anything really more than a sort of an online resume tool, which I feel like most people initially, um, that's all they saw it for. But when I transitioned to, uh, from Great West Life, working with uh, another insurer, I started to embrace LinkedIn as a way to find advisors, connect with advisors in the community in a different way that wasn't, um, you know, email or phone or in-person visits and take that opportunity to, you know, put myself in front of them in, in a different way. And then I, re- I saw, you know, quickly what a great tool it was to share information and, you know, connect about that information online. And so it really was that social piece early on. And I did that at Insurer. And so from the beginning, you know, I shared what the insurer was doing, but I always made sure to keep it balanced with what was our community doing. And I always felt like, and I still do, and this is how I operate my social media today, is that sort of sharing is caring. We're only good as our weakest link. And I really feel like if as an industry, we're in the know um, and you know we're all seeing and sharing this information, we're just better off. I know uh, Lori Power likes to talk about a rising tide floats all boats here, right? Just, and I, I think this is a big change I've seen in the benefits industry in the last, let's say, 10 or 12 years. I feel like the kind of work you're doing contributes to this, where when I came into this business, about the same time as you would have, when I came into the financial services space, the group space really did feel very insular. You know, everybody kind of learned what they learned on their own. And now I see a, a ton more of a, a community focus. So, you know, kudos for helping to build that. And I think that, you know, seeing that like in that social media area. Now, do you get um, any sort of, and again, I'm not looking for you to pick on the mothership here, but do you get, probably calling them the mothership is not helpful, um, <laughs> but do you get any uh, sort of pushback on stuff you do want to post? Like, do they essentially kind of give you carte blanche or... Do they say we want to see your posts beforehand? How does that work from that in that corporate environment? Yeah, and you know, and I think every corporate environment is probably a little bit different. Um, in ours, you know, myself and our account executives, um, we don't have to run um, what we're putting out there through you know marketing first. Um, you know, we're we're all well versed in you know what's okay and what's not okay to put out there. Um, I think the most difficult thing for my team is um, holding back on sharing when we have something new and exciting, because we like to give our advisor partners uh, the chance to share it with their clients first. So we, we usually wait until the e-news has gone out to advisors, and then a couple of days later, we'll go out to plan administrators. We try to wait to share until after that, but I can tell you it can be very difficult because when you have something... Um, exciting, you know, an, an update uh, that that's happened. Uh, everyone's just wants to talk about it. So I think that's the most challenging thing that the team runs into is kind of holding back on sharing exciting news. I think every MFDA licensed advisor listening to this right now is probably shaking their fists in some sort of jealous rage. So, well, I have to say, you know, in in 
previous roles, you know, I've, uh, there, there is sensitivities that we need to consider. What are you posting about? Who are our partners? And being mindful of that. And even, you know, I've found in the past, maybe some more restrictions, even being an advisor, because I'm very collab. I, I feel like social media is a place to collaborate. And um, it's not all about, you know, marketing your company, it should be conversational. And, you know, it's okay to like something that a competitor puts out there, but not at all companies. So, you know, you could run into a situation depending on where you work, where you could get your hands slapped because you've engaged with a competitor. So I think wherever you are, you need to be mindful of, you know, the, the company's internal social media conduct rules, what's generally accepted in society as well. And like, there's a lot of facets to it. Um, but it's definitely a place where, you know, it's open for sharing and collaboration. Uh, we just need to be mindful of the, the rules around it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good point you raise here where it takes, I think, a long time and a lot of effort to build a useful social media presence. Absolutely. You, you can undo it. Isn't one bad post, even liking one, one bad post, right? You're potentially... Uh, offside there. So yeah, that's, it's, it's a good point to be aware, not just of your social media policies, but fully aware of the consequences of your actions. Absolutely. I think a lot of people listening will be interested in the account executives role. And you and I even chatted about this a little bit uh, before we started this conversation, before we started recording. And I know there's areas that uh, brokers, uh, I don't know if pick on, but let's say sometimes you know, they have interactions with their account executives where they, they wonder about what's going on behind the curtain. And I'm, I'm hoping you can just help us understand a little bit of where the account executive sits here and what, what you see as the account executive's role and maybe a little bit of the, let's say, the benefit of having a good relationship with your account executive. So can we start maybe just at the beginning with pricing and placing and underwriting new business? Absolutely. So when we're thinking about group benefits. I'm going to kind of like take a little step back here. Uh, We often put emphasis on the word benefit. And I think that people have forgotten that these benefit plans are insurance plans. And so that's what we're pricing is the insurance risk of a plan. And that's what we're renewing is the insurance risk. And over time, you know, benefit plans have evolved to cover a lot more day-to-day expenses Um, versus just pure insurance. You know, we have the life insurance, we have disability, we have critical illness. And today, because so many drugs are quite expensive, drugs are a really important piece to the insurance plan. And then along with um, out-of-province and out-of-country coverage. But with those day-to-day expenses, you know, can you imagine insuring something in your home that costs $300? Most people would never buy insurance for something that costs $300. But that's exactly what we're doing in the benefit plan. We're insuring these low-cost items um, that we wouldn't do in our day-to-day life. So, you know, initially where we're looking at the group benefit plan, you know, insurance for a catastrophic health event, now it's insurance for a catastrophic health event, and it's a really important piece of the total compensation. Uh, so kind of breaking those apart, you know, on pricing, when we're insuring or when we're trying to price that insurance risk, you know, we're really looking at 
all of the usual things that you see on the individual side. We've got employee demographics, the industry, the location of the employer, the location of the employees, the occupations. And, and then when we get into, even on the, um, on the insured benefits that you know, are pooled uh, at renewal time, we still are looking at claims history. What's the risk of taking on this client? You know, are they uh, a 50-person uh, employer group with 10 open disability claims? You know, what's the risk around that? Do we want to take it on? How do you price for it? So underwriting is looking at all of that information that's coming in from the advisor and saying, how do we price this based on what we know, you know, in the actuarial tables, what do we know about the client and their risk from here? You know, the account executives will receive the pricing from underwriting and, you know, they'll have some discounting that they can apply. They have incentives that they can add to the client and they'll work with the advisor um, to make those adjustments based on what makes sense for the client. And so from here, you know, these initial uh, prices that are set, we have a competitive marketplace in group benefits. And sometimes or oftentimes, I think in smaller benefit plans, you know, because of the competitiveness, we do see plans be underfunded for the renewal. Yeah. And this is sort of the, the challenge, right, is you want to gain that business, presumably, right? Like you say, it's a competitive market. And how does the account executive work with the broker to then work with the client to sort of manage that to say, you know, we, we want to attract new business and we know that we're going to have to be competitive to do so. But now, yeah, you potentially have an underfunded plan at, at renewal, right? Exactly. So, so what does that conversation look like when you're first quoting the plan? Yeah. And I think this is where the advisor's role is really important. You know, um, a big piece of their job is doing that due diligence to say, um, is this plan properly funded? And then make that recommendation to their client based on the conversations they've had with their client on what's important and what they value um, and what they really need in the plan and then what their budget is. You know, so as an advisor presenting um, and recommending to a client, if, if they're just spreadsheeting, you do end up a lot of the times with the client saying, oh, well, I like this low rate here because they don't know any better. So we really count on it, the, you know, the advisors to make that strong recommend- recommendation to their client based on all of the information that they know, what's going to be best for them. And then to set that expectation again early on, this is the price now, and this will be the price for however many months. And then after that, this is how our renewal works. And this is what you can expect. And, you know, this is the average renewal that we see. So I think those conversations are really important. And as the uh, broker, then having that conversation with the client, how much information do I get from the insurer that would help me to inform that? Or maybe the way to ask that is, do you find brokers are good at, at pulling the right information from the insurer? Or what, you know, what advice would you have for a broker who wants to make sure that they're having the right conversation with the client about that. Yeah, I think um, for the for the most part, the advisors in our industry, you know, do a good job pulling the information and putting in front of the client, you know, financial factors that are important to review in a quote um, beyond just the base price, of course, you know, what's the 
insurer's budget to pay out for claims. So the target loss ratio, you know, uh, for every dollar collected, what are you budgeting to pay out in a claim? That's an important number for a client. For small clients, it's important for the advisor to understand the renewal methodology. So, you know, how much weight is going to be put on the client's claims usage and how do they calculate that the other factors that go into the renewal? Because not all the insurers, you know, calculate these things the same way. So one insurer might use a manual rate, another insurer might use profitability, another could use trend. And so that non-credible factor is a really important one to understand in small group, because when you only have four people, of course, your plan is going to be underfunded. If you use $500 of massage as an individual, you're, you're pretty much already there at the cost of the plan for the year. So on these micro-sized clients, you know, the renewal is a really important part to that price stability. And in larger clients, we get into which funding arrangements make sense for that size client, what type of risk do they have? You know, we're starting to see uh, advisors more accepting of ASO, administrative services only plans, because of that, the day-to-day expenses that we're insuring. You know, so we're moving over to these sort of non-insurance pieces for those. So in, you know, in larger plans, is the plan funded is a lot more important than in smaller plans. It's a fair point, and there's so much to unpack here now. I, I want to go way back to your conversation where you said a few minutes ago that $300 thing, the dental cleaning, for example, right? Like, would I insure that $300 thing? And I think about this sometimes, you know, I, I went to Home Depot this weekend, I bought a new sander, mm-hmm. $60 sander. And what, what do they ask me at the till there, right? Do you want to buy some insurance to extend the warranty? <laughs> I would love to see the statistics on how many people actually choose to insure their $60 Sanders, right? It's such a, and then, you know, take that away, right? Take away that $300 cleaning as something that the employee gets covered and see what your pushback is like. Like I would wager that you get a lot more pushback there than if you somehow reduce the employee's base wage by $300. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's that word benefit. Um, You know, we are feeling entitled to use these, you know, these components in the plan because it's a benefit for me. So I should be using it. And I think that's where we start. We're starting to see more of a divide in what employees value in plans and how they are engaged in them. Employees are pushing for more personalized choice, which is why healthcare spending accounts have become a lot more popular because they can choose how to spend those benefit dollars. And I think, you know, again, it's that division between what's insurance and what is really just a part of the employee's total compensation. And I think it's okay to have, uh, it's more than okay to have this, you know, piece of total compensation support employees' health and keep employees healthy. It's just, you know, do how we fund these things still make sense? For a lot of employees, our answer is yes. Um, It does still make sense to insure these because while we look at a $300 benefit, it's not just one $300 benefit, it's many of them. And then it's across many people. So there's just different ways of looking at it, you know, different perspectives. And an employer needs to decide what works for them, what supports their culture and their values and their budget. 
And somehow there is a difference between $300 spent on dental and $300 spent on massage, isn't there? Like, Absolutely. Um, I mean, oral health is vital to your overall health, but people will, you know, um, fiercely defend massage that, you know, maybe it's keeping them from a disability claim. We don't have uh, enough strong evidence. You know, the studies aren't there. Um, and some of our paramedical practitioners, however, you know, they're important components of the benefit plan and, you know, they drive engagement. These are things that employees want. And so what's the value of that increased engagement? It's a real challenge. I get that. And I know how much pressure insurers are under to continue to, you know, give the full suite of dental care mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, respond to what really is an expanding catalog of paramedical services, right? This is, you know, as you point out, that's not really insurance and yet it falls on the, the benefit plan to, to deal with all of that. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to get in a situation too, where, you know, some carers have started more openly questioning saying, do you want to fund perks or things that work? Um, you know, as we're getting into more difficult renewals because of high cost drugs, employers are making those decisions. Do I want to cover these medications that people need, or do I want to cover this side of the benefits that's more a benefit and a perk? Yeah, it's uh, it's a tough trade-off. And it, it's good that, you know, you position this as a discussion with the employer, because ultimately, it is the employer slash plan members who absorb that cost, right? Absolutely. Now, back to the role of the account executive. Um, we'll get back there, right? So what do you see? You talked about education quite a bit. I think that's a, a really solid point here. What do you see as the role of, of the account executives that, that work with you in managing those relationships with the brokers who are out there? You know, this is really the... F- amazing fun part about what we do is building relationships with consultants, advisors, brokers, um, and supporting them in their business, whether it's growing their business, maintaining, um, whatever it is. This is why people in our industry stay for so long and why they love their careers, because this community is so wonderful. And, you know, building, you know, long-term relationships with with advisors. It's a favorite, it's a favorite piece of, of why I'm in the industry. Yeah, it's, it's really great. So, you know, in managing that relationship, it is an important relationship and it's important for advisors to have, you know, strong relationships with their carriers. Uh, you know, it's a two-way street. We want to help you. Uh, we want to be there for you when, when you need something for your client. And, you know, we want you to be there for us when we have an ask as well. So it's it's really important to have a strong two-way connection. Yeah, and I agree with those comments. That was something we, uh, over the summer, we sold our business. And in the process of selling, we had to have all these conversations about what our roles are afterwards. And mm-hmm. you know, for me, right, uh, number one thing on my list was continuing to get to have these relationships with all of these great people that I get to deal with every day, right? So Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Now, uh, we already touched on uh, the brokers or the advisor, and you're right, broker, advisor, consultant, and various other roles that people fill on their education and warning the client a little bit about renewals. What else do you see in terms of the account executive's role or your role in dealing with uh, 
dealing with renewals, whether it's pricing or otherwise? Yeah, you know, when we're looking at the renewal, I think it's really important to think about what is the purpose of a renewal? Why do we do this exercise, right? And and really, we're looking back uh, retrospectively to try to plan for the future. Have we priced the group correctly? That's what it's all about, is setting, uh, based on what we know about a group, setting the price for the future going forward. So group benefit plans renew every 12 months. The first renewal is usually a 15 or 16 months after the group was sold. And this is so that in a renewal, you can have a full 12 months of experience. Many years ago, um, you know, a renewal might pop up 12 months later. So on the anniversary date that the group was sold, but because of the lag of when you need to actually run the renewal, do the preparations, give the advisor time to prepare, uh, to prepare as well and present to the client, you only ended up with nine months of experience on that first renewal. Um, so by having that 15 or 16 month time period, insurers are, are able to have a full 12 months of experience to review, and it just makes the numbers more credible. So the purpose of the renewal fits to set pricing for you know, the next year based on what we know. Um, that's really the exercise we're going through. Um, you know, It's one of the few products out there that um, an advisor needs to resell every single year. An insurer needs to resell every single year. Um, that's essentially what we're doing. Yeah, this actually reminds me of my days teaching LLQP when I used to ask the question, when is a year 16 months? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in group benefits, yep. In group benefits, the first year for group benefits, right? And sometimes, sometimes later years too. Um, on that note, actually, so this is a particularly challenging year for renewals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit about renewals in the era of COVID when, you know, experience is almost, I don't want to say useless, but we're getting there, right? It was a challenging year for experience because you had, you know, two or three months where a lot of um, practitioner offices were closed, dental offices were closed, um, and then paramedical practitioner offices were closed. Um, People were still able to get their prescriptions. So that was, you know, uh, mostly business as usual. Um, So it was challenging. And, you know, during those months as well, the insurers uh, provided premium credits um, to, to clients as well. Uh, and so it did make the question of what do we do at renewal quite challenging. And you know each insurer asked themselves this question just the same as they did when uh, the premium credits were being offered, you know, how much and for how long and for which benefits. So I think for the most part, the industry, has come up with the same answer. Uh, it's just been executed a little bit differently, um, insurer by insurer, what you see in the report. And so most insurers um, removed those months where offices were closed um, and premiums were reduced from the renewal experience because we're really trying to set rates for the future. And we've done that in the past by relying on what we've seen in the past and trying to predict you know, how will that uh, affect pricing going forward? And so we felt like including those months was really a disservice to clients because it's not going to price them appropriately for what's coming. And now that we've had a full year um, of 2020 to analyze with claims, you know, what we've really found is that claims didn't 
decrease compared to 2019. They actually increased across a lot of benefits. Um, and, you know, as an advisor, if you look at your, and it'll be client by client, you know, some clients, of course, did have a decrease, but overall in the block, claims are up. And I think this is largely in part because a lot of these places that were closed had smaller benefit limits. So if you're going to use $500 massage, you're going to use $500 of massage. It's, it's five or less visits. It's not that difficult. Um, and even in, in the dental um, you know, uh, side of, of things, um, you know, the utilization in dental was up. The claims volumes were, were higher than they were in 2019. Um, so we really didn't see much of a change there. So when an advisor is looking at a renewal and they're saying, oh, but these months would be good for my client, we're doing clients a disservice by not setting the price correctly. We need to consider the full 12 months and you know what actually has happened so that we can price appropriately for the future. The last thing that we want to do is underfund a plan. The goal, of course, is to have the most steady rates that you possibly can. So when you have larger rate swing, swings, we're not doing anyone favors. I guess if you could, uh, you know, fire up your crystal ball here, do you think then that, you know, fast forward a year from now when we're, let's assume that sometime in the next three or four months, a lot of this current COVID stuff ends, we don't get, you know, the South African variant or something like that, that washes over us. But assuming we emerge from this in the next, you know, say, like, that would be uh, late spring or early summer of 2021, and you fast forward then after that, the renewals that are you know entirely post-COVID, do you think that there's going to be big shocks there? Or do you think at least, and I know you can maybe talk about equitable a little better than other firms, but do you think that those renewals are going to be right? Or do you think there's going to be, say, a, a much wider range of outcomes with that set of renewals? So looking into the magical crystal ball that tells all of the future that we wish we had, um, I hope that that we don't see a large rate swing. Um, but, you know, we know that um, in many provinces, the dental fee guide increased more than it usually does. Um, we know that, you know, the volume of dental claims increased in 2020. So if we look at the dental benefit, um, you know, it's reasonable to predict that that cost is increasing for employers and they should budget for a higher than average increase in 2022. Um, when we look at the disability benefit, you know, we know that COVID provided challenges with people getting back to work. We read a lot about the mental health tsunami that is coming. We haven't seen quite yet a full LTD tsunami because of COVID, uh, but those things don't just happen overnight. Uh, the LTD benefits been challenged across our industry for years with higher number of claims. You know, we're seeing challenges in that benefit across the industry. Drugs are, they're trucking along business as usual. So, you know, there's no reason to think that will change. And then on the healthcare side, I think that people who have been holding back are excited to get back and see their practitioners. 
so those benefits, you know, should carry on business as usual as well, maybe even a little bit heavier usage because there is a little bit of pent up demand. So, you know, if, if in a small group market, we saw an average renewal of 7%-ish overall, I wouldn't be surprised if you see that jump closer to a double digit. And if, you know, on the large group side, theoretically, you know, when you're, when you're large, your renewal should be pretty steady, you know, really zero to three, 4%. Those groups should be um, a lot more stable than smaller employers plans because, you know, there's the risk is spread much wider, but employers in that space, you know, I would be also bracing for a little bit higher than average claims. That's bold predictions, Megan. I like it. That's, higher uh, than average is my bold prediction <laughs> across all benefits, uh, maybe except for life insurance. That's a fair point. Yeah. The, I, life. I, I'd love to get into travel, but I want to go in a different direction here first, if we can, and just back to the account executive. So um, we chatted a fair bit about managing renewals. Can you just talk me through, uh, I have sort of three case studies here, right? Mm -hmm. So a case where uh, we have a renewal with a big increase where it is justified. So, and I know sometimes, you know, the, the, the account, sort of the, uh, the broker will look at that and they'll freak out, right? They'll say that's, sorry, brokers, if that's offensive, but they'll say, you know, that's way more than my client's going to be able to manage or some version of that. So what, what advice do you have or what handling can you discuss here where you have that renewal that, that is quite high, but it's supported by experience? Mm -hmm. You know, I hope that when a renewal is released, it's not a surprise to the advisor or the client. Um, my hope is that advisors are keeping their clients informed of uh, their claims usage throughout the year. And they're having those regular touch points and meetings um, to set the expectation of what could happen at renewal. Uh, so when the renewal does come out and it's large, I hope that everyone was ready for it. Now, whether or not the client can afford to take on that full increase is a different story. Because if we're talking about say, a 50% increase, that's, that's quite large. Um, and we're also, in many cases, not just asking the employer to pay for this increase, but the employees as well. Uh, so I think that, you know, having uh, open communication with clients throughout the year and, and having claim reviews throughout the year, helping the client, you know, prepare for renewal, you can get ahead of a bad renewal sometimes by, um, having an employee education session um, or by making plan changes. There's things that advisors can do to try to get ahead of that. Um, but, you know, we do try to, and all the insurers do, you know, we try to work with advisors and their clients to um, manage high increases. Um, you know, sometimes they can be spread over multiple years. Other times it just needs to get put through. Um, you know, it, it can be challenging. It's, uh, People can understand and, you know, why it's happening. But again, if the client can't pay it, they can't pay it. And they need to reassess then what they're offering in their plan and reassess affordability um, to manage the plan going forward. Yeah, I think that's good. I, I, that being said, it's very common. I, I know a lot of small business owners here in Edmonton, and it's very normal 
that I'll be having a conversation with somebody. And when they find out that I know anything at all about group benefits, which is not much, honestly, but when they, they, you know, they'll have a story about something very similar where they were surprised by a, a big renewal. And, you know, I, I, I do agree with you that the, uh, the broker should see that coming and should have prepared. I just, uh, a lot of times it seems like it doesn't happen. I don't know if it's because the broker is not focused on their existing business or if it's because the broker doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news or like, I'm not, I'm not sure what drives that. Um, and I've, I've seen it with brokers that I know that are special specialists in the group space. So we never had it, thankfully. I, I, that was always a fear of mine at, at uh, Business Career College that we would have, you know, that unmanageable renewal. Mm-hmm. I stayed on top of it. Like we had a great rep and she helped us to, she was really good with all that stuff. But, you know, it was still, it was always a concern. We were, you know, fairly budget sensitive there. So, um, Now, what about the renewal with a big increase where it might not be as easy to explain? And I, I see this sometimes, right? You see this on forums about group benefits that the broker who gets an increase, a 40% increase and they say, I, I can't see the claims here. I don't know what's going on. Can you chat about that? Yeah, so there's... There's a couple of scenarios where I think uh, larger increases are more difficult to explain, and we're seeing it more now in the um, the disability benefit, um, like in the industry in, in general. Um, not speaking specifically to equitable life, um, where you know insurers haven't made updates to their manual rate for many years, and now are making adjustments to catch up to what's going on. Um, you know, with the increased instance of LTD uh, claims. Uh, So they're having block adjustments. And let's pretend, um, you know, imagine you sold a group uh, two years ago uh, or three years ago. It had a 39-month rate guarantee on the LTD benefit. And in that three years, um, piling up behind the scenes, uh, you have demographic changes and, Maybe you have a couple of manual rate changes that the insurer put through to update their rates. So when you reach that renewal, you could easily have a plus 40 coming at you over a 39-month period. So I think in those benefits that have these multi-year extended rate guarantees, we see those um, much larger than average increases often because of you know, the changes going on behind behind the scenes. It's, it's a long time, three years, a lot could happen to the manual rate table um, in that time frame. And then we see unexplainable increases sometimes in pooled plans. Um, you know, so a, 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 for our listeners benefits, you know, a, a pooled plan um, is where you have multiple uh, employers renewing together uh, acting as one larger employer. And so this is how life and disability are often renewed um, to a point. Disability could have some uh, experience rating component depending on how large the plan is. But so, you know, we see association plans um, are often pooled and they promote that as a benefit. You know, you're part of a larger group. Uh, so your risk is spread, the rates are better, um, but you have no idea what your individual group is claiming and and how you're doing, you're counting on the pool to run well. And in theory, you know, this does work well and we've seen it work well, but sometimes advisors will uh, take advantage of a new pool that's launched to 
place groups that they know have challenging claims. Oh, we'll put them in the pool and they'll have better renewals. But then the pool is a pool of groups that were underfunded or have, you know, higher than average claims. Um, so I think that's where it can get frustrating where the pool is doing poorly. You, you're not able to see what's in the pool and you just got to say to your client, the pool's not running well. So that's, that's a challenge. <laughs> and then the other space where we have challenges, I think is on really small groups. And I come back to that credibility. So, you know, credibility is how much weight or, you know, literally how credible is a group's experience. And if you have three people, it's not very credible because one person, um, you know, joins the plan, they have diabetes, they have $7,000 a year of drug expenses, you know, now the rates are out of whack. So there shouldn't be a lot of emphasis put on that client's experience. So we get to that, what is the non-credible factor? How is it calculated? And this is where I think some advisors have a difficult time explaining the renewal because of that non-credible factor. They're relying on experience to sell a renewal with three people when it should be this non-credible factor selling the renewal. Yeah, I can see that, especially if you've got an advisor who sort of, you know, is used to the, say, 20 to 50 life market. And, you know, now they have a, a three or four life group, like you say, and you, you're going to have a lot more volatility there. You just don't get the benefit of, of averages, right? Absolutely. And in larger client plans, the math is right in front of you. So there's no secrets. There's nothing, there's nothing to hide. You can calculate it end to end um, how the insurance carrier got the math. You might not agree with some of the factors, but they're there in front of you. It's pretty transparent. Right. Whereas on the small, the smaller side, you're, you're not going to see the, like the LTD experience is just, it's not as readily available, right? Yes. Now, I don't know how equitable, I, I'm ignorant here, uh, Megan, I don't know how equitable treats sort of long-term guarantees, but, you know, you just commented on the 39-month guarantee. Do you think it's something uh, to be avoided, to be used with caution? Can the sort of clever broker actually game the system a little bit here? Where do you think that sits? I hope the clever brokers aren't gaming the system. Uh, you're probably alluding to marketing the plan every three years and getting new rate guarantees. Um, I think everyone, no one wants to move a group plan. The employer doesn't want to move their plan. It's disruptive for their employees. Um, you have to, they have to learn new systems. Um, as much as insurers try to match everything, there's going to be nuances um, that have changed. And so, you know, once you have um, the right price set for the group, things should flow, you know, pretty with stability. And that's the ultimate goal here. You know, uh, clients don't, employers want to have steady rates. They want to be able to you know, budget accordingly for, for their group plan. So I, I don't think people want to move around a lot. And I think that's why people are drawn to these longer rate guarantees and why they're drawn to um, uh, rate caps, because it provides an element of certainty for however you know, amount of time it is for a business. You know, it helps them plan their cash flow. It helps them plan their future um, because there's a known element where sometimes it can be unknown. So I think that we need to go into rate caps and rate guarantees eyes wide open with here's what's happening in the background. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Just 
you know, it's a tool and be cautious that there's potential downsides to using that tool, right? Yes. Now, going back to my sort of scenarios around renewals. So what about the case where you have a renewal where maybe it's a little bit uncomfortable, like an 8% renewal, and the, the broker says, you just keep hitting me with these renewals. It seems like every year it's 8% in fl- like CPI is only 2%, right? You, you hear that sometimes where the, the renewal is probably justified, but it just that, you know, it's like a death by a thousand cuts and the broker pushes back at it a little bit. So how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, I think with group benefit renewals in general, you know, I go back to the managing clients expectations and um, what is as an advisor, you know, what is your average renewal change Um, and being able to have that conversation, you know, with clients um, of what they can expect. um, What's the carrier's average change? um, What about the industry? Uh, I think when we're, if we set the right expectations in the beginning, we have a lot of easier time when we do have an average increase because the client's expecting it. They see that it makes sense. Um, it's within, you know, what they've budgeted for, hopefully, because the advisor set that expectation for them on this is what you should expect based on, you know, my block of business. Okay. So switching gears then, uh, you mentioned earlier the sort of increasing use of ASO, let's say like different funding models. Uh And of course, I have a background as a small business owner. This is an area that's always near and dear to my heart. What about uh, stop loss in drug plans? This is an area where I see a lot of maybe frustration from advisors. Yeah, you know, the the stop loss in drug plans when I entered the industry was less than $5,000 and slowly started to increase uh, over time. Um, So the stop loss is the insurance for the insurance, essentially. Um, It helps employers um, with stability in their group plan by removing a high cost drug claim from the renewal experience. So, uh, you know, it helps provide the element of stability and doesn't put the employer on the hook for a large cost drug. So we know over time, um, the prevalence of, of high cost drugs has increased um, and they're a regular occurrence in benefit plans. So we've seen that stop loss amount increase um, over time to, you know, being in a small group plan, ten to $15,000 on a regular basis, larger employers um, who are willing to accept more risk look to have anywhere between 15 to maybe even 50 or $100,000. Um, it's kind of like a deductible <laughs> in a sense. Uh, so that's what the where the limits are. Um, it's a really important piece of the benefit plan because, like I said, it's that insurance for the insurance. Um, and you know, across provinces, we have uh, different levels of pharmacare delivered provincially. Uh, so BC, for example, um, we have the Fair Pharmacare program, and it covers a lot of high cost drugs. Um, so the plans here are at a much lower risk of having a high cost drug claim than a plan, say, in Nova Scotia. And so, you know, provincially, the cost for that catastrophic coverage, you know, should be different by province. And it is at Equitable Life. Um, I can't speak for all insurers. 
Um, and, you know, when you have an employer who has employees in multiple uh, provinces, uh, you know, that, um, that cost is calculated as a blended fee uh, for reasonableness. That's helpful. Thanks. I, I think that, uh, I mean, that stop loss thing is something that every group should be paying at least some attention to, right? It's absolutely come back. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, what, what does equitable do that you're uh, particularly proud of? You talked about this excitement earlier and this enthusiasm when something is, uh, you know, new. Um, so what have you got that, that you wish maybe more advisors knew about, or mm-hmm. that you just say, this is something we do incredibly well here. So I feel like equitable life is one of those, if you know, you know, right. And people who know us, they know, they love working with us. Um, and it's in large part due to our really high level of service. And I know a lot of people kind of tote their service, um, <clears throat> but we really have the proof in the pudding. And so advisors love working with us because they really feel that element of extra care. And this is because we're committed to our advisor distribution. You know, we rely exclusively on advisors for the success of our business. So, you know, their success is our success. And it's, you know, it's a really important element of how we do business. And it really drives what we do. You know, as our industry is automating, we've already seen some insurers try to cut the advisor out, maybe not so successfully. Um, and in other cases, some insurers do work uh, direct with employers. And, you know, so I think that's a really important, you know, piece of like what Equitable is all about. Um, and I'm really proud of how we continue to thoughtfully innovate. You know, we were the first carrier to launch um, an end-to-end digital enrollment experience for plan members that included the digital, the coveted digital beneficiary um, signature. And we did that well before uh, COVID sort of forced our industry um, to innovate in that space. Um, you know, now we're working on same day quote to sale. We're doing a lot of really cool things in that space that's going to make, you know, doing business with us fully digital, really streamlined for advisors, really thinking about that employer and employee user experience. I've actually gone through the equitable enrollment, the fully digital enrollment. Uh, that's, and yeah, seamless. It's how it should be. Thanks. Excellent. <laughs> what about the uh, role of uh, telemedicine uh, now? Where do you see that uh, today? And, and where do you see that taking benefits plans? So I'm a huge fan of telemedicine. Um, there's nothing I hate more than having to try to call a physician's office and make an appointment, travel there, wait 12 hours in the reception room because they overbooked and then spend three minutes with the doctor. Um, so a huge fan of telemedicine, but fundamentally the health act is responsible for primary care. So this should be a service that's delivered by the provinces. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that in most provinces, the service is actually available for free. So for example, in BC, we have Maple, we have Babylon, you know, we have uh, telemedicine providers, um, you know, having their full app experience available for free for residents, you know, it's billed to MSP. So I think that's a really important piece of the telemedicine puzzle is it is free 
in a lot of provinces, employers don't need to pay for it. So why should they pay for that service? And there are reasons to, um, you know, accessing the service outside of kind of the core hours. And then the telemedicine providers are, you know, adding in other values around that core piece of seeing a physician. So, you know, as an employer right now, you need to determine what's free in uh, my province. Is it worth paying for this service? Because, you know, imagine you're uh, in the HR department at a company, you've grown to 100 employees, and you get to choose between purchasing an HR technology piece like an HRIS that's going to make your life really easy or giving employees telemedicine. You know, they cost the same in a lot of cases. And I think, um, you know, employers are having to make those trade-offs. So um, really going forward, you know, long-term, I think that the telemedicine providers are going to continue to innovate, be relevant and offer a great service. Um, But that seeing a physician piece uh, will likely be delivered, you know, provincially. It makes sense. And there's a ton of uh, entrepreneurship and innovation in the telemedicine space. So I think that absolutely. Yeah, it's a space to watch for sure. And I think it's going to be um, a valuable piece of the benefits puzzle. Um, We'll just have to wait and see what kind of things they add in there. And you know, for advisors, this is a really great piece, you know, to start building your own ecosystem of partnerships. So when you're talking to clients, and you're adding value, you know, this is a place where you can say, you can put your hand up and say, hey, I have some great options for you. I vetted these. This is who I partner with um, instead of tying it to an insurance carrier. When you do need to move a group, let's say you've had a bad customer service experience and, you know, the employer wants to change carriers. Do you want to change insurers or do you want to change insurers, EAP providers, uh, HRIS systems, telemedicine systems, a wellness program? So by creating their own ecosystem, you know, they're tying value to the advisor and they're making themselves sticky instead of making the insurance carrier sticky. It's a a nice bit of sort of, I guess, uh, uh, career coaching for the uh, advisors listening. I I like it. Um, And uh, my last uh, structured question here, what about national pharmacare? Uh, Any thoughts here? Mm -hmm. You know, pharmacare seems to have taken a backseat, um, largely because of COVID. And I don't know where we'll end up seeing this initiative go. Um, you know, there's talks of, um, um, you know, maybe supplementing income and, and kind of having a, a national system there. So we'll have to see. But, you know, I'm on the fence about how I feel about Pharmacare. I'm torn because being a part of the industry, I see how a full-blown pharmacare plan, you know, the government runs the entire thing. It's taken out of insurance completely. I see how that could create job losses, you know, in our industry. Um, but it will also provide a fairness in access to drugs. You know, right now it's a lottery based on where you were born and then where you can afford to live. Um, you know, so the population, um, you know, I, I think would embrace that fairness. Um, uh, but a lot of people would lose, you know, possibly coverage to a drug that they have. 
Um, you know, the government isn't going to cover every single drug that comes to the market. There's going to be a list of drugs, you know, based on uh, efficacy and the pricing and not all new drugs that come to market are better, right? So there will be lots of reviews. Um, but, you know, the population might be disappointed with the list <laughs> that, that the government comes out with. I think there's a balance in there somewhere where, um, you know, across Canada, people have better access to essential drugs and we have better access and maybe more fair access to high cost drugs um, without dismantling the system that we're in already. Yeah, I think it's a, this is a challenging uh, proposition at best. And it's one of these things where no matter what happens, uh, there will be a, a significant portion of people who are unhappy with the solution. Absolutely. So. Not everyone will, will be happy. And I don't know, it seems like the focus has kind of transitioned to the universal income, you know, from this piece. Um, but as our population continues to age, and as fewer employers have options of a retiree benefit program, uh, I think we're going to see an emphasis uh, province by province on beefing up the senior drug plan. And maybe that's where we'll see a national program because there's not great options for retirees, um, it, you know, right now in, in, in the industry. That's a really good point. And that, that might be the sort of gap, the, the thing that national pharmacare can really fix. I, there might be, you know, I, I think sometimes uh, young families with underemployed parents is another one where you see mm -hmm. gaps. So yeah, that's, that's good. I like that. Megan, that's very thoughtful. Um, any last minute comments, anything that you want to share with us that, uh, that I didn't get to ask you about? Uh, no, I'll just say thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was great chatting with you today. The number for this episode is eight. The number for this episode is eight. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. you'll join me again in two weeks time for our next episode i don't actually have our guest booked yet i just finished up cfp exam prep season and it's a busy time so now i'm just getting my feet back under me 
uh, but I'm going to shoot for somebody in the impact investing slash social investing space. Back to uh, a more individual financial planning focused topic. Thank you very much and enjoy your continued studies. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Maria Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Parmalopaket, Ji uh, Wu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much.